on our swallowing physiology series and that's what we have been doing we've had three so far and because we're doing our very last critical thinking and dysphagia management course in New York and we have advice and we have Louise Raquel May I thought it would be really amazing for especially for Louise who is um, local if I could take advantage of his brain while he's here. And so the reason we're sort of taking a little shift from CTDM or sort of from the Swallowing Physiology series is because we get to have Luis around. And so I'm gonna ask both of you to please introduce yourself, starting with Luis. Please tell us who you are, tell us what you do, tell us why you're fabulous. Well, thank you very much, um, Yanessa, um, and you're most fabulous. Um, uh, I am an associate uh, professor at New York Medical College and director of speech pathology at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. Um, and that's what keeps me busy and having fun in the world of swallowing. And what keeps you fabulous? What keeps me fabulous? Um, aside from a uh, good skincare routine, <laughs> Um, would be really um, staying on top and engage, engaging in research, but also staying on top of the research. Because uh, especially in the world of dysphagia, I believe that the research that is usually generated impacts our clinical practices. Mm -hmm. And so, as I always say to students and colleagues, um, the way I did a clinical swallow exam or an instrumental exam um, a year ago or two years ago is not the same way I'm doing it now. Okay. Ed. Um, I'm Ed Bice and I'm clinical program consultant with Accelerated Care Plus. So I travel the country trying to influence um, how therapy is conducted in clinics across mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. So the title of this podcast is What Have You Done For Me Lately? And the reason I think that's an appropriate title is because there's a lot of discussion about who ASHA is, what ASHA is doing, and specifically what ASHA is doing for dysphagia management. So I'm going to start with just a little bit of background for why this is a discussion. So for those people who aren't very familiar, the way that dysphagia management came into our field is first because in the 70s and 80s, clinicians had patients with neurologic problems with multiple problems. They'd have voice problems, they'd have language problems, they had speech problems. But if you're in acute care, if you're in a medical facility, they're not necessarily all medical problems. The problem they had is we need to get nutrition and hydration in this person. You're already a specialist with the same structures that are used for swallowing and you do behavioral rehab, can you fix the swallow? And a lot of clinicians at that time just started trying to fix swallowing in advance or before it was ever in our scope of practice. Correct. And then later on, it ended up getting in our scope of practice. Jerry Logeman was influential in that. She was ASHA president and really pushed for that. So people were practicing before it was in our scope of practice. Then it finally came into our scope of practice. Since it's been in our scope of practice, ASHA later on, I think it was 2005, said we have to have it as part of the big nine, one of the major things that SLPs were graduating from graduate programs need to have. So swallowing ended up being something required in our curriculum later on. So I always say it's like backwards uh, sex ed. It's like we're already doing it. Maybe we should give them condoms and oh, by the way, this is the way sex happens. This is education for sex. Right. So that is partly why we're here. And there's a lot of complaints about Ash's role in 
writing out a scope of practice because it does say we have the requisite knowledge. We are experts at screening and, and managing dysphagia, but on the ground, there's a lot of concern that that scope of practice doesn't actually match what we're doing. It's almost like a wishful statement. It's not a representation of what's actually happening. And part of that is because we have 350 plus dysphagia programs, but we don't have 350 plus experts at those places to really reinforce swallowing. Mm -hmm. So Luis, because you are um, involved in ASHA, you're one of the most involved people who I know who's also somebody that goes to all the swallowing meetings and um, has influence on clinicians in all the places you've been in terms of how swallowing management should go. I thought you'd be perfect to talk about this. and. The other good thing is you're actually running for ASHA president. So that's a good thing because you can tell us about the ins and outs in terms of what people need to know about what ASHA can do for them and what they are supposed to be doing because they too are ASHA. Right. And thank you. Um, yes, I've always been a believer that, that ASHA is us. Mm -hmm. And it's okay for us to sit back and complain, but we have to be part of the solution. And so, um, as you said, you know, in the 80s, uh, we were already practicing in the area. 83, Jerry Logeman's book uh, came out, 85, Michael Growers. And so it wasn't until 1994 that our scope of practice actually reflected swallowing as part of our, um, uh, our practice patterns. Um, and, and that was a big deal. That was a big, big deal. Um, and there was a lot of discussion around that. Um, there was a lot of resistance back in the 80s about us being engaged in dysphagia uh, practice. Um, and, and as you said, um, in acute care, if it weren't for dysphagia, we wouldn't have jobs right now mm -hmm. because the priority in acute care, especially with this focus on length of stay, is can the patient ambulate? and how is the patient to maintain their nutrition. Um, if they can't communicate, then listen, they'll deal with that in rehab later mm -hmm. on, which mm -hmm. is, you know, for us as specialists, a shame, but it's what has also kept us in there. Um, I think we also bring so much to the table in our collaboration with other specialists, um, uh, be they the different specialists um, in medicine, um, dietitians, um, other rehab professionals. Um, that's a big, big deal. Now, um, we say, what what is ASHA doing for for us? Um, the response sometimes, because it's such a big organization, and right now there are 204,000 members of ASHA that are speech-language pathologists, um, audiologists, and speech-language hearing and swallowing scientists. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's kind of a big a big charge for an association um, our size and and yet it's it's really at the forefront but it's at the forefront because there are some great people doing some great things to move it forward some good research some good clinical folks and some people volunteering of their time to be on committees and getting work done um, but you know that's not the whole the whole piece right um, so you mentioned also academic programs well we have a lot of, of programs still out there where they're fitting in the dysphagia course or it might be half dysphagia half voice right mm -hmm. or this mindset that we have that there is a medical speech pathologist and there's an educational speech pathologist mm -hmm. and personally I'm against that breakthrough or breakdown because I believe that anybody that's graduating with a master's degree whether it's an MS or an MA um, in speech language pathology is going to end up with that CCC SLP after their name. It's still going to be in their scope of practice. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so the master's degree is really a generalist's degree and then we, we choose to specialize. So why should the eight-year-old that's being seen by a clinician in the school 
be seen by somebody with all those letters after their name and receive different treatment than if that eight-year-old went down the block to a private practice. So let me ask you, what is ASHA's, okay, this is gonna be a weird question. It might mm -hmm. be provocative given what's just happened in Alabama with abortion, but just mm -hmm. work with me here. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I have heard a lot of people say that a lot of people who are against abortion are pro-birth, not pro-life, meaning just get the baby out and after that, it's on you. Mm -hmm. I have also heard people say that ASHA is pro-getting people through graduate school and after that, they don't have any role in how well you keep up your competency, meaning there is a whole committee dedicated to making sure that these programs are accredited and a lot mm -hmm. of resources go into that. Correct. But there aren't, there don't seem, the complaint is, there don't seem to be the same amount of resources going to make sure that the practicing SLPs are competent. Sure, you can take all kinds of CEUs, but I give CEU courses and I have learned recently that the work that they're doing to actually confirm that those CEUs are actually the right CEUs to be given, mm -hmm. I don't even have to get um, reviewed anymore. Interesting. So I used to have to submit all my stuff, people would look through slides, et cetera, mm -hmm. and I was told recently that they're not reviewing that anymore. Interesting. So, so that's um, sort of the pro-birth, pro-life thing. Let's, right. let's get more graduates out there and then, oops, how do we actually make sure their clinical supervising is good? How do we make sure their early clinical experiences are good? Right. How do you make sure that they don't have 20 years that's not just the first year repeated 19 times of doing the same thing? Exactly. So, you know, an, an attempt towards that was implementing the continuing education, you know, requirement to, you know, renew your C's. Um, many um, states, their licensing boards have also implemented this continuing competency, continuing education um, requirements. And that's all good, but we all know that just because you go sit in a course or you take an online course doesn't really influence your practice, right? Um, so we don't have a good way of ensuring that. Um, there have been some attempts. We do have the specialty boards um, that are independent bodies from ASHA, but if you say you are a specialist in swallowing, you can become board certified specialist in swallowing, um, and as well it's as you can- It's not required though. It's not required, mm. correct. And and we know that, but then we look at our behavior patterns as a, as as professions, right? And specifically in speech language pathology, we have over thirty five thousand um, uh, speech pathologists saying they practice in the area of dysphagia. Yet under twelve thousand are affiliates of special interest group thirteen, which, mm -hmm. as you know, is a quick way very often to get information and have some good discussion forums, etc and under 400 are board certified specialists in mm -hmm. swallowing, right? And there, and there are reasons for that. And everybody can be a specialist in everything. Mm -hmm. um, so how does that influence our, our practice patterns, right? I still see patients with aphasia. I'm not board certified in aphasia. Um, uh, so I think some people might have that thinking as well. Well, I'm not board certified in swallowing, but I'm still you know, working in this area. We always lean on the code of ethics, and I think people will interpret it in different ways. Um, and I, you know, I, I think we need to talk more about what is a user-friendly way to not only access knowledge, but to be able to turn that into skills development. Um, we have a crisis right now. Why aren't there enough speech-language pathologists in the NICU? Well, well, the question is, do we need more speech language pathologists? Well, and my question 
is more rudimentary than that. So we require a certain number of CEUs, whether in the state or the triennium for ASHA, mm -hmm. but there's no quality assurance, as Ines has already said. And the other issue is I can work in adult geriatrics and all of my CEUs can be in articulation. Correct. And no one vets that. And, and so even though there's a CE requirement, there is no requirement for the content of my practice area being part of that CE. And, and for me, that's very problematic. Mm -hmm. And in other clinical domains, how do they manage that? They have to take boards all the time. Correct. They don't just take the praxis once and then you're free to go. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, there's a lot of complaints about paying ASHA, what is it, two or three or four hundred, I forget how much 220, it is. 220, I believe. $220 Basic, yeah. in yeah. December. Now, what month is it right now? It is May. May. Everybody knows in December they're going to have to pay. Right. But they're going to complain in December. Now, it's one thing to complain about when it is and all those things and how much it is. But the argument a lot of people are having is, what is ASHA doing for me when I give them this money? Is it a ripoff? How come ASHA can't come to my facility and get me a C-arm or get the radiologist to comply? Correct. And again, right. that is, ASHA is everybody, right? It's a right. grassroots movement that we're all supporting each other and making the steps to make our, our body of people actually competent. So ASHA can't come down and make your boss do anything Correct. Any more than the American Medical Association can come down and make sure that, G that the GIs at that facility have the most updated scopes. It's the GIs at that area that are supposed to band together and make the facility understand their worth. But that's what we're not doing. Right. We're not sharing enough of that. We're not helping each other enough. And there are lots of reasons for that. One is you might have your heart in the right place, but you can't open your doors to everybody. Um, you have a specialty practice and you have people, you know, calling you, other colleagues with your same credentials saying, can I come and observe you for a day? Can I, well, but you have productivity standards to meet. You have patients you have to see. You have confidentiality issues. How do we work that out? Um, I think there isn't enough of that sharing going on. Um, I don't believe that we fully understand that ASHA is us and that our board of directors is is the group that is making decisions about where we're, we're headed and where we're going. Yet many of our strategic objectives right now um, are really clinically based, mm -hmm. right? But how do we make it easy for anyone to be able to reach the board of directors. Well, you have to know that you go on the website and you have to go into this um, in-touch board, a board in touch, right? And you send in this form and that's the quickest way to get to a board member. Mm -hmm. um, what I will often say to folks, especially on chats on Facebook, et cetera, it's find out who the vice president that that is in charge of that area that you're mm -hmm. concerned about is, touch base directly with that vice president, mm -hmm. right? But we're not making those connections enough. And um, I think also sometimes we're not feeling like the people that are um, in office, you know, um, taking on these roles as vice presidents on the board of directors or presidents um, are truly representative of who we are. Yeah. And so we that's, need that's to make those connections more. Less exactly. than 5% of us vote. Exactly. Less than 5% right. of ASHA exactly. members vote. Exactly. But, but even beyond that, when you start thinking about other professions, mm -hmm. say, let's talk about the neurologist. Mm -hmm. So ASHA has competencies for what you need to know ethically, and mm -hmm. we're supposed to be competent in a given area for our ethics, mm -hmm. that, you know, here's the prerequisite skills that you need to know to treat swallowing. 
And uh -huh. so those are laid out pretty clearly in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine a neurologist walking into a situation and then saying, so we're gonna bring you into this hospital, but we don't have CT scans and we don't have MRIs. So we just expect you to feel people's heads and figure out what's wrong and make prescriptions and make decisions based on that. Correct. So there has to be something inherent in, in the kind of people that become speech pathologists who are willing to acquiesce to accepting less than competence and not holding themselves accountable. It's, it's kind of that thing of, we're looking at other people saying, what are you doing for me? But we're not looking in the mirror saying, what, what am, am I, I doing, doing for, for myself? Mm -hmm. So Correct. the JFK, Correct. ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So, so there, there are, you know, there are things that, um, that need really, and, and I'm always thinking about, you know, um, um, ad hoc committees or task forces to bring in people to the table to talk about how do we recredential, right? Why should I be able to, by just paying and maintaining my CEUs, keep these Cs, right? Do we need, you know, um, to be re-examined, retested in our specialty areas? The difficulty becomes when it, that specialty area business. Um, with neurologists, for example, or with PAs, um, they're another example where they, every several five or ten years they have to retake um, board exams well it's tied into board certification well we're not all board certified right mm -hmm. the whole specialty recognition program specialty certification program is fair somewhat new maybe a decade a little over a decade old mm -hmm. um, and we don't have it for all our specialty areas so you know how could we um, fit a model like that in would everybody in different practice areas be open to something like that would it really impact how we practice, um, et cetera. And I think those are things that we need to bring to the table but with even, a mixed group of people. Even family practitioners, you know, I wouldn't consider uh -huh. that to be a specialty area. That's a that's a true generalist. And uh -huh. they have to be re-credentialed every, mm -hmm. every few years. And then the question becomes, and I'm picking on a word that you said, would they be agreeable? Does it matter if people are agreeable or does it matter that we have to protect the integrity of our profession? so that we do it, whether people are agreeable to this or not, that we do have some type of recertification on a rotating basis mm -hmm. to say, yes, you've kept up with your field. Yes, you are current or at least moderately current mm -hmm. with with what, uh, what we're doing. Because even in the medical profession, there's research that says the farther out people are from their educational practice, the less they are in tune to the most update but, information. But you said, are you keeping up? we aren't showing that recent graduates have it in the first place. Well, there you go. So this Correct. is the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's Correct. this. That's why I started with this background, backwards thing where we prioritize the field of study of deglutition last over they're already doing it. My opinion, you know, back then when I heard and I was working with Joanne Robbins at the time and she told me all about her primary mentor, Jerry Logeman, and all she did to bring bring us swallowing, I thought that's amazing. Like hearing all the stories and where mm -hmm. she was and video fluoroscopy, that's great. And while I completely respect everything that happened, I also recognize that one person's um, one person's passion and energy does not translate to policy that works for everybody. Correct. And that's the issue. She had every everything in place where she was at Northwestern. She had right. the knowledge. She did everything to write the very first book. And it really pushed us forward. But she there's no way she could know that 
their ASHA is not able to implement that model into every single ComDisk program. We don't have a Jerry Logan everywhere. We don't have a fees everywhere. We don't have her knowledge and her push everywhere. So what ends up happening is that's the seed that was planted, but some of the little sprouts that are coming up, they're not getting enough sun, they're not getting enough water, but they still have the same scope of practice that Jerry Logeman has. They have the same right to everyone's airway that Jerry Logeman had, but they don't have the same knowledge base that she had. And so to give them boards now is to basically weed them out way after they did all their quote unquote due diligence to even become a speech right, pathologist. Right. Because you know, our, our, our practice arena is so broad, right? We graduate as generalists. Um, what concerns me is the area of dysphagia, for example, always gets put on the side. So there's a big importance on the child language coursework and child language competencies and development of knowledge and skills there. Um, you know, I, for example, I had to take a fluency course, yet I don't work with anybody with fluency disorders. Um, a voice was certainly related, so it was an interest area, etc. And so when I have, you know, I'm very lucky that I, that I teach in, in, in a program that's in a medical school and so our students are coming in with that mindset. Mm -hmm. But as you know, I have many colleagues and I did teach before in, in, in a program that was um, not in, in a medical school. And so, you know, you have students that aren't really interested in this, just like I wasn't really that interested in, let's say, fluency disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have students not really as interested. But how do you balance the students that are interested in dysphagia that might not practice in that area later on with the ones that really are and give them the opportunity to be able to move that forward just like we do to the child language. We, do we need to balance them? These are people, here's the thing, I am not into coddling these individuals. You come into mm -hmm. this field and you take ComDis 101 or whatever the course is, Introduction right. to Communication Sciences or and you say the argument needs to be you, it's not that you get to do this, is that people are going to be subject to you Correct. Other human beings are going to be subject to you in a clinical setting, whether you know this information or not. So you learn it because there's a human being at the other end of this, Correct. not we get to do so much fun stuff. Correct. So the interest level is not as important. If you're, if you're a physician, you have the right to end up delivering a baby. At some point, they train you on that because it could happen. You could be anywhere point. and it could happen, but it doesn't mean you have to be interested in it. You have to be interested in this baby and this mom making right. it. And I believe that the dysphagia course, because it's so different than everything else we do in communication science and disorders, um, presents a different way of thinking. Yeah. Um, we're making a direct connection with... Mechanisms. With the, if, the, if the course is taught the way I we would love it to be taught, right? Uh, it's really tying in with that physiology, with those mechanisms, sure. with the influence. You're tying in respiration with, you know, everything else. Um, so, I mean, I, I totally agree. Um, how do we get it up to that level? I mean, so many programs, you know, they're not doing a great job at um, recruiting full-time faculty that, that specializes in dysphagia. But there aren't enough. There aren't there enough. There aren't enough. We're all, all of us, we all know each other, right? Right. I always say right. DRS is like, you know how they have a rule about not having too many high officials of the United States in the same place because the whole, all the government will die? Yeah. DRS, yeah. if something happens in Puerto Rico next year, yeah. this degolutition's not happening, yeah. right? Across yeah. the globe. Yeah. So there, we all know each other and there aren't 350 plus of us who are actually really experts. Correct. And frankly, 
any program that only had one language person there, everyone would go, what kind of program is that? Exactly. They have several language people, several speech people, several hearing, and you're lucky if you have one swallowing, but it is one part of the big nine. Neither of them get any better weight. So every student who trains gets trained based on what the faculty is, not based on what ASHA mandates. If your faculty is heavy on he hearing and or, or language, that's what you're getting. If exactly. your faculty is heavy, heavy on medicine, that's what you're getting. And how do these faculty makeups break up across right. the universities? Right. Just however, whoever gets hired. And the mentoring available to the adjuncts. Right, mm -hmm. So you have maybe clinical experts who are coming in to teach a course and they have all good intentions, but are they really being mentored? Are they being um, um, uh, asked to really tie it in with evidence? Are they really asked to uh, provide other opportunities, examples? How, what are some of the different teaching methods to keep the class engaged as opposed to coming in, straight lecture, pass an exam, boom, mm -hmm. next? Yeah. Right, and I think that, back to your point uh, um, that I often hear, uh, professors who teach dysphagia say, well, a lot of these students aren't going into this. But isn't it our responsibility or the responsibility of those who are providing education, whether it be a fluency class, which I would have no disinterest in, or no interest, I'm sorry, or a, a, a swallowing course, to teach you as if this is going to be your only area of yes. practice. Yes, it, the uh -huh. patient, we owe it to our patients. And so then when we start talking about Ash's role, if, so Ash's role really isn't maybe what you can do for me, mm -hmm. but about the rigor of program accreditation mm -hmm. and what is actually being taught rather than just coming in and saying, oh, these are a bunch of great people and they published. And so, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening. And so, yes, you're credentialed, mm -hmm. but really spending time and digging in and saying, what are, what's being taught here? Mm -hmm. And it, are there certain criteria that right. we would expect? I know my wife is a public school teacher and in the state of Virginia, we have something called standards of learning. And so every fourth grader, no matter what school they attend in Virginia, are expected to have certain competencies in this area before they can pass on. And they take that test, and we don't have that same rigor that no matter what school you attend, whether Dr. Ianissa Humbert is my professor or whether Mary Smith, who is who never took a dysphagia course, is my professor, that when you finish this course, there is a certain level of competence that we expect from you. And if you don't have that level of competence, you don't move on. And that doesn't happen right. because there's no there's no way to do that. There's no way for ASHA to reach every single program and check to see what the student knows. There's only the praxis for which there's one or two questions about swallowing on it. Right, right. but if there were a praxis, like mm -hmm. there's a standard of learning for every so course we No, took. no, I get So every, every area of the big nine should have its own praxis. And wh who would decide that? So, right. so I don't know. I'm just, it's, it's so just let, one of those things I'm throwing yeah, out. Sure, so let I me know. tell you what's what, what's happening. First of all, let's just make sure that that we realize that um, ASHA doesn't control um, academic accreditation. Right. It's the CAA. That's right. Um, and the CAA, um, although they rent space within the ASHA National Office, the mm -hmm. CAA is a separate mm -hmm. body, mm -hmm. um, strongly affiliated mm -hmm. with with ASHA. So so question one is how open is CAA to listening to what? Um, those of us in the trenches have to say. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece is, you know, so so the CAA uh, transitioned some years ago from going to course requirements to requirements of knowledge and skills. Yeah. Um, um, and what sometimes concerns me, and, and maybe we need to go to a next level, right, in terms of, of those competencies and how we're looking at that. And they're asking programs now, from what I understand, um, to see, you know, to kind of show how the students are meeting particular competencies. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
But what, what I sometimes think about is how do we then, in, in a two-day site visit, train the site visitors who are volunteers on how to ask the right questions, right? Because we go through the same thing with, let's say, multiculturalism, whatever that big term is. How do we make, how do we ensure that a program is addressing some of the many um, aspects of culture in their coursework, not just in the one multicultural course, if there even is one, mm -hmm. right? But that's a big cultural shift that yeah. takes mm -hmm. some time. Um, but again, would CAA be open to listening to what, you know, the town hall meeting, a couple of different ways to, to allow people right. to and access? And so the question I have for you is how, how do you end, okay, I'm not going to say how does one end up on CAA. I'm just going to say that the pathway to being influential in many things, not just ASHA, but whatever DRS or, you know, whatever, whatever, SIG 15, mm -hmm. right, is a pathway that some people don't always know how to get on, right? right? And then it ends up being, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with this, it's just the way it is, a small group of people who change the direction for a lot of people. Correct. And a lot of people look at it and sometimes say, hey, well, that doesn't make sense, but a lot of people don't feed back information. And the small group of people are putting this work in are kind of tired of people complaining about the volunteer time they have, right? right. So I think part of the issue is that there needs to be a way for people to provide information that is general. It doesn't have to be to the CAA with this idea. It just needs to be a general um, town hall type thing where we finally figure out what the topics need to be. There's so mm -hmm. much going on that we can't say, this is a topic about teaching dysphagia and so-and-so. Well, I wish we could funnel down at the start. We need to just talk right. in general about things. Right. But ASHA has the capacity to do this at its meeting. Mm -hmm. But everything is so pre-planned with all of these talks that there's not an, or there's a big sessions where it's awards and things people have to say. There's really not a forum, even though you have, what, 11, 12, 13,000 members sitting there. There's really no forum for people to just go Oprah style and get a microphone and have people just say, hey, this is what so, I think. So there is. There, there are At usually, Asha? for the past like four years, there have been two membership forums, but they're not always easy to find on the program and they are running concurrent with other sessions. That's my point. That's right? my point. You have all yeah. these so things happening not... and you're sacrificing between getting your CEUs exactly. and really getting the, the, the voice of what exactly. people have to say. And I think yeah. it doesn't have to happen, Ash. It could lead up to Asha and Asha can prioritize sort of fielding all of these online requests that are coming in totally. over a year. And by November, we say, these are the big topics people are talking about. We'll have a panel for each of these topics. Right. You can get CUs for it because you're learning about it and it's more of a discussion. Right. That to me seems more interesting. Right, because I, I know that you've led this charge, Ianissa, on bringing up critical thinking and dysphagia management, mm -hmm. you know. But are there people in fluency, in voice, in child language, who are having the same thoughts yes, that you there have are. had there are. and saying our field is not Definitely. progressing forward yes. and we don't have the right. evidence we need right. to yes. support, but they're just not being as proactive. But given right. this forum that you just exactly. suggested, right. they could come together and start trying to find solutions to move right. each area of practice forward. Yes. Yeah. But what we have to see also is that one type of forum alone doesn't work for everybody. Yes. Right. And I think, I mean, Yanessa, you're a great example, and there are several others um, um, in our field doing different blogs or podcasts like this, mm -hmm. um, or uh, you know, ch chat rooms on Facebook, mm -hmm. etc., to allow people to do that. So, how Asha, I don't think has 
done a good job at using those groups and accessing yeah. that that potential. We have right. 204,000 members. We know the younger generation very often will just delete emails without even opening them. So emails is not always the best way to reach out to the masses, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're bombarded with so much information. So, yeah. um, so, but we have to go multifaceted. We have to go the octopus approach, mm -hmm. right? So we have a couple of issues we've identified. Let's try a few things. It might be an email. It might be um, through a podcast. It might be a chat room. It might be a webinar. A forum. And get all and a I, forum. So I love, I love totally. diversifying ways to communicate, but I also yeah. love diversifying who's in charge. Yes. Here's my problem when things yeah. get too formal. Mm -hmm. It becomes these people who get to control everything and the agenda. Mm -hmm. It hap it does people don't mean it, but you have to have somebody to sort of organize. This is why right. lately I've been involved in organizing a couple of think type think tank style things mm -hmm. where you come with these provocative questions mm -hmm. and you say what they are in advance. People come in, they've thought of it, and people just go. Mm -hmm. I don't want this. I don't, I'm tired of the meetings where it's 90% talks, 10% discussion. Correct. It should be 90% discussion, 10% sort of organizing the, the, the pathway of how the topics are going to roll out. People have things to say that are interesting. And this is why Facebook is both scary and amazing. Exactly. Because you have people just putting things out there and you have these interesting discussions. I've made so many connections by not just getting a chance to hear what people have to say, but, you know, interacting where I see fit. And I have the opportunity to jump in when I want and jump out when I want. Correct. And I don't think that there, I think this top-down situation where the experts are talking and everybody's listening is a bad idea. I it's agree. a really bad idea I and that's agree. why we are where we are because the experts get to say things and then people have to try to retrofit it into their life when actually the people who are doing the work make me an expert because they're telling me what's really happening. I exactly. can't be an expert if I'm not hearing from clinicians. Exactly. Well, think about our research, yeah. right? I mean, if we don't have questions to answer, then where would our research go? Exactly. And that happens with everything. So, but where are we getting those questions right. from? Right. So right. is it somebody in a faculty position making something up mm -hmm. or is it somebody really listening to what's happening out or in the world and both? trying to answer? Right. And how is that then being sent back to the clinicians exactly. who have the questions? Because exactly. How many clinicians have access to all these hundreds of journals who are right. in the field? Now, in school, you do because you have access, but you know how many have access to the hundreds of journals mm -hmm. that we publish in, for dysphagia literature is published in, and how do we weed through all of those to determine what is going to help us answer the questions that we have in our mm -hmm. clinic? And mm -hmm. you know that's one of the reasons why I started the the journal club, mm -hmm. trying to connect people and give them an avenue to talk to people who are creating the research and ask questions and dialogue because there's this big divide. Um, and f I'm in a position, fortunately, where I get to meet people like the two mm -hmm. of you and talk to you and pick your brains, but not that the average clinician is in a job where they have 90% productivity and they have mm -hmm. kids to go home to, et cetera, et cetera. And how do we start channeling? And I think that their voice is saying, what is Asha doing for me? And, and, and we don't need Maybe they need to reframe the question, but maybe people need to listen to that question as well because I don't think they're really saying, what is Asha doing for me? Mm -hmm. I think they're saying is, how do I survive? Yeah, yeah. I can't be thinking about thriving right now. I'm just trying to survive right now. And But here's the thing that I've seen happen lately. You know how you the only way to be a, a Hollywood star was because somebody mm -hmm. found you pretty woman style, right. made you amazing, and put you on a stage? Now we have YouTube stars because they have Correct. access to the world. Exactly. We have 
the same thing that the Kardashians have. Exactly. We have the internet, we have a brain, right. and we have hopefully some gusto, some excitement, some passion to say what we have to say. That's why there's so many blogs, that's why there's so many groups, and I think mm -hmm. it's a good thing that those right. are the case, but I do think there are so few experts that view that as something they should be involved in, that you're hearing a lot of things from people who have maybe a limited knowledge, but a large audience. Correct. But some of them maybe could take some acting classes. You know what I'm saying? Correct. And so what Correct. happens is you don't have these experts saying, hey, here's you know method acting, blah, 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 because they're like, that's beneath me. If it's not a published paper, an external or a grant, or if it's not invited to talk to DRS, I won't be a part of that. Right. Again, it's not just that we're all ASHA, but we are that clinician. Exactly. So you can be an expert who's complaining about that dumb clinician over there, but mm -hmm. they are you, they are representing you. Your fight is harder because they're not educated. So you cannot separate from people who have the same degree as you. Right, Correct. and I hear you people say... It. So you, you know, better just work together about helping each other, whatever that means. Right, and I hear people say, oh, I grow, I've grown so weary of social media. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I, I hear them. <laughs> I hear them. Mm -hmm. But if we remove ourselves mm -hmm. from those discussions and from what's going on Correct. in social media, then how do we influence the thought processes? But And it is exhausting and it is time consuming. But we have a duty. Right. We, we have a duty. We're influencing lives. We're mm -hmm. making decisions. We're diagnosing communication and swallowing disorders. We need to be at the top of our game. Yep. So, so where's then that sense of commitment that we have to? Okay. It's the same thing I hear. Like, I don't have time to volunteer to be on a committee. Mm -hmm. And yet I've been on committees with colleagues who have two and three children mm -hmm. and somehow still fit it in. You know, their partner is thing. part of the process. And maybe it's not their maybe thing, there's but they support way. the groups yes. that are doing but that. Here's thing right. I agree with you completely maybe you don't find the committee the time for the committee because it's not compelling you right. so you you can't find it because it's hard to try to do it right. but maybe there's something else you can do I don't think every expert needs to be commenting on Facebook that is not for everybody but Correct. I think that there is a way to to balance your frustration with what people don't know with doing it I just started a podcast mm -hmm. I just we just started CTDM we just started step we just started you know these someone so said do a right. course right. if somebody invites me to something at an in-service at their hospital I'm in town I'll stop by and say right. some words if they think that's useful right so but plug, I've also, in plug in right. somewhere plug in somewhere plug in somewhere plug in and, somewhere and sometimes it's a simple start like I, I've had colleagues who say well what I do is Saturday mornings I'm getting up you know before you know the kids and the husband or wife get up and making my coffee and I'm sitting down and I'm making it a goal that I'm reading you know three articles or three pieces of information that are new to me a month yeah right that's a realistic goal mm -hmm. set that in that keeps you growing professionally right. that makes you ask other questions then you might even be attracted to other continuing education opportunities you'll have different opinions and you'll have something start to start shaping with somebody. your thinking yeah. so the other thing I would yeah. say is maybe your deal is not this national or global stage you don't want to write a blog you don't want to comment on any group and you don't really want to give a talk but if you have concerns about the slps in your facility which i have to, to this date not worked with anyone who said there we're all on the same page we completely agree we all think we're each other's fabulous there's always someone like well she gives everyone a chin tuck have a conversation. Be the person to start that in-service or that regular meeting where we talk about doing Correct. an M&M style, mor morbidity, mortality style, SLP version of it, right? Where basically we get together and we pull out our floors. It's anonymous. We say, hey, this is what the judgment. Do we all agree with this? Should we be changing our practice? Mm -hmm. Is there a way we can talk about this? That is a way that Correct. you can actually work and it impacts your job. Correct. Right. So have personal goals. 
for you as a professional, and then perhaps you can start developing what you actually need from other people, whether it be the national organization, your state organization, your local yeah. or community. But I think right now what we have is this nebulous, do something for me, do something for mm -hmm. me, and we don't have personal goals, and we're not holding ourselves personally mm -hmm. accountable, and then fig figuring out how all of these pieces plug in together yeah. and not just sitting back with our arms folded and saying, what have you done for me lately? Right. Be because sometimes our mindset is very nine to five. This mm -hmm. is a job. And, yeah. and I always say, this can't be a job. No. This is a profession. We're yeah. making decisions it's about people's lives. Um, so even if it means, well, I don't have time during my day. Well, do you have a lunch hour? Maybe mm -hmm. that's the time where your whole department can get together and every other week have lunch together and discuss topics of interest, mm -hmm. review literature, review findings, mm -hmm. you know, um, you maybe know, it's a listen maybe, to podcasts. Right. Maybe you're initiating, maybe you've done something. You've initiated a way to make sure your discharge summaries are prioritized alongside mm -hmm. PT and OT. And you know, there's a neighboring hospital where they're complaining about the same thing. And you talk to those people. This Correct. is what I did. Let me Correct. share how we overcame that barrier that is another way to reach out and it's it's really maybe it's a, something that should be standardized we don't know but nobody knows how successful you were right. at getting the radiologist to yeah. to listen to you whatever that happens we're not to always be. sharing enough yeah 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 definitely or or sometimes the sharing is in a more negative of mm -hmm. this isn't working and i hate radiologists because they do this instead mm -hmm. of and the constructive people are spending their time being constructive rather than get jumping into these conversations mm -hmm. And, and again, it's it's back to, please, we need the people who have positive input and ideas to be plugging in right. to all of these things. But I like the negative people too, because I like to turn them around. Do. I mean, every <laughs> meeting I have, it's, yeah. what do you do about that person who does this to you? And I'll say, and what have you done so far? Well, I haven't said anything yet. Okay, so what can I do for you? I can't help you with that. Exactly. If you can't talk to the people around you, that's an issue. But I like to hear the negativity because it gives me an opportunity for me to say, you need to fix your own problem. Problems as best as you and can. And you do that very well. <laughs> things, things like I can't schedule my patients in radiology. Well, have you sat down to talk with the administrator of radiology? Have you found out how they schedule and try to work around mm -hmm. the schedule so that you have some slots, etc.? What have you done if to make your service valuable yeah. so that they see that you need radiology? Cool. You know, even and back sometimes it's farther. a yes, I Correct. did, but it didn't work. Did you persist? Right. Or Correct. what did you do? Yeah. Because their perception of what's sure. valuable and the radiologist's perception of what's valuable may be Or it's different. I asked and they didn't say yes. Yeah, that's not the way the world works. <laughs> and, and you know what? And, and Ed, you just said something very important. Um, fluoro is not that valuable in radiology anymore. It's not. Right? So we have a new medical director that came in some months ago um, to radiology and we met and he said, you know, I'm trying to pull away from fluoro. You know, we don't use that. There are all these other approaches, blah, blah, blah. I said, why do you need fluoro? And so when I explained what we're doing, um, you know, he came from a setting where it was all about is the patient aspirating or not. And I said, oh, no, that is just a little part of the whole puzzle. Um, and so he understood. And so we've kept our slots. We've kept our format. He understands why it's important um, to, to keep the program going. Um, but we had to have that discussion. And I had to understand where he was coming from, too. Right? So um, um, we're sometimes very quick to judge. Um, but it's important that we understand where people um, are coming from and what their experience was with other colleagues in other settings. And you're so nice. And see, like, we take a kind of a different approach. We and do. that's that's just. But it's they're all effective in their own way. Mm -hmm. We all know how how yeah. to modulate but if I had to summarize what we talked about while the title is still what have you done for me lately I would mm -hmm. argue that what we've been saying is if you have concerns let's right now it's dysphagia management but it can be anywhere 
if you have concerns about how ASH, how you think ASHA is influencing or not influencing the state of dysphagia management, then you, being ASHA, should influence ASHA. Correct. You actually have a big opportunity to start reaching out to ASHA, start submitting posters and talks, start actually contacting them via email or through the board to say, I have concerns about XYZ, these are some things I've done. It's really a squeaky wheel situation, isn't it? Right. If they keep right. hearing these same concerns and you're talking about what you've done, what you're, what you're having issues with, maybe it's possible that ASHA can be big enough to talk to the, um, the governing bodies of radiology and say, hey, just like fees, how we were able to do fees, Asha played a role in it. Maybe we can also be doing fluoro. I mean, actually, I would argue that sticking a tube through somebody's nose can have some risks, like laryngospasm, in the same way as pressing a pedal and delivering radi uh, radiation. And we could be partnering with them instead of saying, get the radiology to respect me. Maybe we need to be saying, actually, get us competency. You get us certified to actually do fluoro just like we do fees. I will give the one caveat because. Uh, imagine that I have communicated with Asha. Imagine yeah. that. Okay. Um, and initially, what I learned was that each department has a lot of form emails or letters that they send back to you, mm -hmm. kind of like your congressmen do that, and they just mm -hmm. kind of it's oh, you're addressing this issue, mm -hmm. and this is the letter that we have. And so, mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned is in every correspondence now, I say um, I'm not interested in a form letter. Mm -hmm. If you don't have something to communicate back to me, then just don't communicate back. Mm -hmm. And now I actually oh, get so personal let me see what you're saying. What you're saying is that you have contacted ASHA and you've gotten the form response. Right. Ah. And now I've learned that in my communication to say, I know that you have form responses and I'm not interested in them. Mm -hmm. You know, I want you to communicate with me personally. Mm -hmm. And so now I actually do get personal emails back from the people mm -hmm. that I'm corresponding with mm -hmm. instead of these canned letters. And, you know. But still, the point is them continuing to get the same concern will hopefully mean that while they will send individuals the form letters, there might be a discussion to make committees, et cetera, to say, okay, this is an issue. These form letters aren't working anymore. But if it's just you, Ed, and a couple of people, right. it's just I'm responding to Ed. If it's responding to 10% of the people who are actually in the scope of practice, they might say, wow, that's a big enough number that we need to not just send back these letters, but actually give a, a solution that yeah. involves yeah. them. Right, and I would say that. But I think that if you take the approach of I don't want a form letter, now they can't just hit a button and send you a form letter. Sure, sure. If I'm bothering them and they have to spend two hours every day responding to the same, sure. now it becomes a bigger issue for that sure. person than just hitting a form letter and sending yeah. it back. Right, right. Well, go ahead. So, we'll so yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm always a believer, again, try to reach out to the board of directors. That might not always give you the answers that, that, that you want. And so maybe the appropriate department, right? Mm -hmm. So healthcare, dysphagia, mm -hmm. touch people, the healthcare department, you'll sure. hear from somebody. Um, and then, but then you'll have a name and a number. Yeah. So you can also pick up the phone. We do it for reimbursement. Yeah, right. Sure do. When there's a reimbursement issue, we get that form letter back. Mm -hmm. We see who sent that back. We pick up the phone and we try to money. get answers. Exactly. That's right. Money. So why can't we do it for the other issues that are impacting us? Um, but that also then those people at the national office who are, you know, basically working for us, right? Because we're ASHA, they're mm -hmm. working for ASHA. Um, they then might bring it to some of the special interest yes. groups. They might bring it to the board of directors yes. um, in terms of where does that fit in and what are some of the issues that are of concern. Um, so we don't 
we might not always see that and again how do we get that communication going with all these different ways and i'm sure there are there are several avenues that asha can take to um improve on that communication for sure but well, we can start communication from us exactly. we need yeah. to start not just right. talk so, complain out to the thin air so what we're saying here is oh my god speech pathologists communication experts need to actually communicate <gasps> <laughs> wow mind blowing how about clinicians have to communicate they're, with each other? Yeah, well, they're they're supposed to be communication experts. Right. So let's all yeah. start communicating. That is that is a big way for us to, I think, summarize this and end it and say it's not just the complaints are still communication, but Correct. they're not a communication with a solution oriented message, right? It's not always the mothership. It's, exactly. It's sometimes between or amongst That's ourselves. That's right. Sometimes it's the little shuttles that are sent out, right? Exactly. Little, right. Well. Fabulous. Thank you guys for being willing to do this sort of at the last minute. Luis, well, thank you so much for the invitation. Having you back again. And hopefully um, the folks who are listening will take this as a um, incentive to, yes, complain, but also try to develop their own solutions and share that with people. Totally. I agree.